Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis, focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today I'm lucky to be joined by two guests, by Paul Esper and by Jan Folkel. Paul is a former visiting postdoctoral fellow at the Orient Institute in Beirut and a current visiting researcher at the College of Mexico. And Jan is a senior researcher at the Arnold Bergstrasser Institute. Jan, Paul, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hello, Isa. It's wonderful to be here, Isra. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited to have you guys on and also for today's topic. Um, the two of you co-edited the newest issue of MELG, which just came out this week and looks at parliaments in the Middle East and North Africa. So we get to dive into that today, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to because it speaks to a number of questions I'm confronting in my own research. Um, so, yeah, let's dive right in. And, and maybe to start off, maybe you could tell me a bit about, you know, um, how did the two of you come together to work on this special issue? You know, where did the idea come from? It begins really on the sidelines, if you will, of the Brismas Annual Conference in 2015. Uh, this is where I first met Jan, and uh, we were dealing with similar topics at that time. And then so we, we got discussing the relatively limited coverage of parliaments, not just in academic research uh, at this time, but also more broadly in discussions about political reform outside of distinct electoral cycles. Right. Uh, and that's where it began. It, it then emerged into a, a, uh, a panel that we organized at the European Standing Committee for Parliamentary Research in Munich in 2016. And so we had a, a panel, we organized a panel there with a number of scholars and in the wake of that, we started to develop this idea of a special issue. And two years later, at the World Congress for Middle East Studies in Sevilla, 2018, we presented another, another panel, this time with the direct question, or the statement, rather, parliaments in the Middle East and North Africa are a struggle for relevance. And on the sidelines of that, we had a, an author's meeting, and really that's where the the essence of what this special issue is comes from. Well, that's that's quite a grand tour around Europe, but it certainly <laughs> turned into a great issue. Now, before we get into the the special issue's contents and, and the contribution it makes to studying Arab parliaments, I wonder if you could first, you know, provide a bit of background about how Arab parliaments have traditionally or, or frequently been approached. Well, I think it used to be the overall impression for the all the decades since the independence of most Arab countries, literally to say parliaments are there in most countries, but they do not play the classical role that we would expect from fully democratic legislative chambers. So they neither controlled the governments, nor did they contribute meaningfully to the legislative processes. Mm -hmm. What they did was literally to secure the power of the authoritarian regimes by giving them an image of democratization or of democratic institutions. So there were elections, there were maybe political parties, not in all cases, but in some countries at least. But overall, parliaments were not relevant in terms of democratic polities, transparency, uh, public control, and so on and so forth. Um, there were only a limited number of academic studies, as far as Paul and I could see, uh, largely published in the late 1990s, early 2000s which was literally still the period of optimism that after the end of the Cold War, globally, 
uh, and the increasing pressure on democratization also towards the Arab regimes. Parliaments might be strengthened, political parties might be strengthened, elections might be more competitive and meaningful. So there was a little bit of academic interest back at that time. But I would say nothing really serious, and probably for a good reason, because on the long run, parliaments did not really gain in relevance or in importance. And then 2011 happened, the Arab Spring broke out across the region. And people demanded freedom, bread, and justice, so a, a more just politics towards them. And Paul and I and many others who joined our endeavor with this special issue thought, well, parliament should be at least the central institution if democracy is to be uh, prevailing across the region, because parliaments are the nexus between the people and the political system, if you wish. And that was the overall observation. Now, 10 years after the outbreak of the Arab Spring, I think most people would agree to say, well, the, the optimism and the positive hopes that people shared in 2011 and the few years after did not become reality in literally all the countries of the Arab world. Of course, to different extents and with different shades, but overall parliaments are still in the very limited position concern, uh, in comparison to their governments, particularly. I would add to that as well that when we're talking about the academic literature, parliaments appear in a very peripheral way, given everything Jan has just said. So if you approach a study of elections, for example, the emphasis is on the electoral process and electoral law, uh, what happens on election day, who are the winners. But then what they do, what these elected members of parliament do the day after election day is not so much under discussion until the next electoral cycle comes around. A similar approach is taken in studies on constitutionalism. When studying the constitutions of Arab states, it's inevitable that in, in a majority of cases, obviously not all Arab states have a parliament, but all of them, I believe, all 22 do have some form of consultative body, at the very least, there is some sort of assembly or chamber uh, where citizens of that society gather and either are engaged in some form of legislation or some form of consultation to an executive authority. Then there's also the question of authoritarian resilience. And parliaments increasingly over the course of the 2000s began to be seen in the academic li literature in a very open way as a linchpin in what you could say is the logic of political survival. How do these, these strong executives sustain themselves in, their, in the context of their individual states? And legislative bodies have been central in that. Mm -hmm. And if we look beyond that sort of instrumentalist view of the parliaments, you know, what do they do besides providing resilience and stabilization you know what are the actual roles that they play you know what what do they actually do between elections i think there are there are at least two ways of looking at this on the one hand if you follow the literature by ellen lust and others on comparative clientelism as part of authoritarian maintenance the parliament serve a role in ensuring that the resources of the state can be distributed to the necessary members of a regime's winning coalition. That is to say, the resources of state can be given to those members of the society 
whose support is necessary in order to maintain a given political order. It could be individuals. It could be other institutions, such as the military. It could be particular classes. And so this is one, one role that parliament, parliaments across the region have served. Another is, of course, to, and this links to what Jan said earlier, about the, the anticipation and the confidence globally in the wake of the Cold War and the way that democracy was expected to traverse to the other parts of the world that had hitherto not seen a full-blown democratization process. And the Arab world was not neglected from this. On the one hand, you have pressure from international partners and domestic pressure to provide some sort of resemblance of a democratic institution since that was the zeitgeist of the period. And in some respects, it still is. And so parliaments were, obviously they weren't created in 1990 or 1989. In some cases, such as Jordan, there was a re-engagement with parliamentary processes. But the main point is that there was a a desire both externally and internally to see parliaments, at least on the face of it, being given a greater, a greater role in the political process within various states. Yeah, we could maybe add some anecdotal evidence that Paul and I could observe in various mm. countries of the Middle East, North Africa. If you imagine a country like Egypt, for instance, where the local administration is largely dysfunctional because of lack of funding and budget in the small communities, it's usually the local deputy in parliament, which is the prime addressee for local people to express their grievance and their demands. So if, for instance, a hospital needs to be renovated or upgraded, you would expect they would go to the local administration and say there's something wrong and we need to do something. But often the local administration doesn't have the means, competence to do something. So people directly address their national deputy in the parliament uh, back in Cairo, which sometimes leads to quite astonished debates within the parliament when the metro in Cairo, the underground system, public transportation, uh, discussed to increase their tariffs. This was a debate in the national parliament where you would assume that something like local transportation, even if it's in the capital, Cairo, and Cairo is, of course, a very important capital uh, for the whole country, this should not be discussed necessarily in the national parliament, whether the ticket should be two uh, pounds or five pounds or seven pounds. So this is something where one clearly can see parliamentarians, particularly if they are motivated, they fill the gap that often a dysfunctional local administration leaves. This is uh, one good example I find where parliamentarians have an important role to play beyond this typical task that you would expect as democratic control uh, and legislation. Another example could be taken from Tunisia also, where Tunisia was very successful with its parliament after 2011 in the first years until it was dissolved recently in the summer. Uh, there was a lot of international support coming in for the Tunisian parliament because it was a sign of hope. In Tunisia, there is a real chance for democracy to prosper and to prevail. So we need to strengthen the parliament. And lots of money was generated through this international support. So who would object to say we need to support parliamentarians as the symbol for democracy? If you would say it's not worth to, to support parliamentarians from outside, you would probably be the absolute minority of persons. So everyone says, yeah, it's a good idea to support parliamentarians in parliament. So it's a kind of cash cow for regimes to present to the outside world 
we need the support. We are interested in having meaningful parliamentarian uh, work. But at the end of the day, this is uh, another question. If it's really leading to some improvement or if it's just to make money literally from outside. And that is, of course, a typical phenomenon that we can observe, not only with Parliament, but also with other institutions where people would say, yeah, it's important to strengthen and to support them. But if they really make a change, this is then a, a different question. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And you reminded me of your, your discussion in the introduction to the special issue, um, where, where you explained that Parliament's function as, you know, a nexus between formal and informal institutions within polities, serving as what you call an optimal place in which political elites can debate, negotiate, and recycle power. And I, I was hoping we could explore this idea a little. You know, how does this, what does this nexus look like across the range of, of very different regimes in the region? Well, I believe one can say also in retro's perspective to 2011 and the years after, the, the main dispute at that time in most of the post-Arab Spring countries was the question, to what extent will the future polity be marked by Islamists or by secularists? And this debate was, of course, largely uh, brought into these constitutional assemblies, which were created or revived at that time. So in Tunisia, particularly also Egypt, even in Libya, to some extent, there was this debate, okay, what do we do with the new state that we want to uh, um, aspire and achieve? So it was literally parliamentary assemblies that debated, okay, what should be the position of women in the new society? How do we want to make a balance between the capital and the countryside? To what extent should parties be allowed or banned uh, that represent Islamist ideas or the former regimes, these things? So there was a lot of dispute and important disputes also about the fundamentals of the new states and the new societies that were about to be created. And this was done in parliamentary forms, including local meetings where citizens were invited to come to local sessions and to express their opinions on certain paragraphs, articles. So that at that time, there was a lot of what we would understand as core legislative gatherings coming together and people expressed different preferences, ideas. And that was then meant to be cemented or brought into a constitutional text that would be the base for the new democratic post-Arab Spring countries. And from that perspective, we had the idea in this understanding, parliaments are indeed the nexus where ordinary citizens can meet political or also economic decision makers, and they can exchange their views um, and come to hopefully good conclusions how the new state should be structured. I'll make two, two points, if, if I may. One is that, uh, using Lebanon as the example, when the Lebanese civil war was ended with the Da'ef Accords, an amendment was attached to the Lebanese constitution that calls for the parliament to establish a committee to develop a roadmap for the abolishment of the sectarian system. And the committee was created in the first parliament that was elected in 1992, and then nothing. What can we take away from this? We can take away that in the case of Lebanon, the parliament has served as a nexus where political elites can indeed meet can discuss issues, but then also develop a consensus to do nothing about it. Right. And that is a state of play that has existed until the present. And the discussion about developing a detailed roadmap to abolish the sectarian system in Lebanon hasn't advanced any further. Yet the constitution compels the parliament to develop this roadmap. So you could say, in a way, that every parliament since the end of the civil war 
has behaved on this issue alone in an unconstitutional manner. If I can add another example from Egypt, more recently, 2016, there was this debate in Egypt about two islands in the Red Sea, um, Sanafi and Tehran, uh, which were, depending on how you read history, part of Saudi Arabia or part of Egypt. But they were managed by Egypt for decades. And now the Egyptian government had announced that they want to hand over these islands back to Saudi Arabia's sovereignty. And these islands are not inhabited and so on, but they are strategically important in the, the Red Sea. There was a large public outcry. How can the government dare to surrender Egyptian territory to the Saudis? Meanwhile, the government had argued, well, we just had it for a certain period. And from the beginning, it was clear these islands are Saudi territory. Parliament at that time rejected to support the government. And they obliged the government to somehow stop this transfer of the islands. But then the government stroked back literally and increased massively the pressure on individual members in the parliament and parliament as an institution. So that after a while, after a few months, parliament agreed to the government's decision to hand over the island to Saudi Arabia, which are now again officially part of the Saudi Arabian territory. But this is a good example. You have this public expectations. This is Egyptian territory and it's mm -hmm unacceptable that the government gives up uh, on these islands. Parliament tries to somehow channel this public outcry into political voices. But as the parliament in Egypt has no power vis-a-vis -vis the government, the government at the end of the day could continue its own plans as it wanted. But this was an example, one of the rare examples, admittedly, where parliament tried to somehow bring people's preferences into the political uh, procedures. In a similar case with Jordan, a few years ago, the Jordanian government signed a multi-billion dollar deal to import gas from Israel. Right. And there was massive public backlash against this. There were demonstrations across the country. More recently, as of this year, the parliament finally debated this deal and the parliament voted to tear up the agreement in the face of, of understandable public outcry. And this was an example of the parliament responding, belatedly, but responding to uh, an issue that was important to the electorate. However, the parliament's decision was challenged in the constitutional court in Jordan, and the constitutional court rejected the parliament's action and said, according to the constitution, it is the king and the king alone who determines the international agreements to which Jordan is a party of. And so the parliament does not have the constitutional authority to tear up the agreement. And in this episode, we can see that there is a, a an episode of representation towards members of parliament. Members of parliament respond, but the institutional matrix in which the parliament is situated delimits the scope for meaningful action by the parliament and its members. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting, Paul. And, and you remind me of a literature that I had sort of in the back of my mind as I was reading the special issue, and that's that the authoritarian legislatures literature that's kind of emerged out of the, the institutionalist turn and the broader work on comparative authoritarianism. And they've really sort of adopted close-range methods to examine the ins and outs of parliaments and focusing not just on on the role of legislators, but on individual legislators and, and taking the role of these individuals seriously. And I was wondering, you know, where do you think Arab parliaments fit into this literature? You know, what can we, 
What can we learn from the research conducted in other regions? Uh, what happens, you know, when we take Arab legislators seriously? And, and then also, what can studying Arab legislators and legislators contribute to that broader literature? Um, I mean, of course, all the Arab parliaments, and I would now say even including the Tunisian parliament, unfortunately, should be qualified as authoritarian parliament. Mm-hmm. Fortunately. But it's more, or should I say it's less, mm-hmm. because they are not only authoritarian, they are also structurally underfunded, which means an individual parliamentarian, as you ask for this, sir, mm-hmm. an individual parliamentarian usually lacks any meaningful support might it be from his party, because most of the parties are dysfunctional as well, unless they are the state unity party, uh, but also that the, the parliament doesn't offer sufficient stuff for parliamentarians, that they support them in preparing the meetings, in reading and analyzing, interpreting the, the legal draft text, getting um, academic support, scientific support for important questions. I mean, imagine the parliamentarians are sitting in the General Assembly then, and they need to discuss questions of uh, economic upgrading today, labor market reform tomorrow, security sector reform after tomorrow, climate change next week, and so on and so forth. And who can be competent in all these questions? No one can do this. So usually in functioning parliaments, the individual members of parliament have stuff that gives them input and that it's necessary and good to have this input. But in the Arab world, in most, if not all countries, the parliamentarians are largely left alone for the reasons that I just mentioned. Meanwhile, the bureaucracy from the government, which means the ministries and the public administration working for the government, they are usually overfunded, overstuffed. Not necessarily overfunded, but overstuffed Mm -hmm. in any case, which means a ministry is so much stronger in its administrative procedures than any parliament that there's already a structural imbalance to the disadvantage of individual parliamentarians. And those that I had the real pleasure to meet and to interview, it's amazing to see how much they work but they are left alone on their own all the time. So if you meet a parliamentarian in any Arab country, particularly in the poorer Arab countries, I should say, they work with their smartphone 24 hours a day. So they manage to post their own Facebook posts, uh, social media. They they get in touch with their electorate. They sit in the chambers. They meet colleagues. So they, they work literally day and night, but unfortunately not really effectively because they lack the institutions around them, the structures that help them to make meaningful parliamentary work at the end of the day. And this is certainly something where I would argue it's not only authoritarian, it's also dysfunctional on top of this authoritarian character. And that makes it difficult even for parliamentarians who might have a very high ambition to do a good job, Mm -hmm. but they can't because they lack the structures around them. Yeah, absolutely. I would add to that that the bureaucracy, the state bureaucracy in many ways, functions in either an indirect or more direct competition with the parliament. And so, as Jan mentioned, where do parliamentarians get their information from? They rely on the ministries, but if the ministries are part of a wider semi or more authoritarian structure, they're not going to freely give out information to members of parliament in order for them to make a decision that might run counter to an individual ministry's agenda or to the agenda of the executive itself. Mm-hmm. That would be, that's one point. Another, though, is what this tells us about citizenship in these countries and what the expectations of the citizenry are for their elected members. I think that's one, that's one thing that 
the study of Arab legislatures can contribute to the wider literature on comparative parliamentarianism is what kind of citizen is being elected to these chambers and what are the experiences and expectations that that they carry into the chamber itself. You would know, Ezra, for example, that, uh, and it's been repeated in the, in the literature on the Jordanian parliament, for example, the kind of members who are elected tend to be from Jordan's tribes. Even citizens who don't belong to a traditional tribe end up reproducing certain tribal-esque behaviours in order to get elected. And this is somewhat different in the case of Lebanon, where the electoral system functions in a, a different form. And this is also something that can be added to the, the wider literature. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really interested in, in the dynamics you were mentioning earlier, Jan. You know, in my own research, I've certainly seen the extent to which legislators in the region lack the necessary funding and capacity to prepare for sessions and and the consequent reliance that they can have on civil society research. And it made me... If, if, I, may, and, if I may add, Ezra, just quickly to that, yeah, uh, just linking this question of resources to expectations. Mm-hmm. When, as Jan mentioned earlier, you have either a new or a dysfunctional local government apparatus, the national parliament is expected to take on matters of local significance, right. which, of course, adds to the workload of the national parliament and individual members. And, the, and this is, the, and this is the, the, the trade-off, isn't it? If you had a more autonomous and responsive local government framework that could deal with day-to-day local issues, whether it be access to, to water, picking up of garbage, fixing electricity connections in the local immediate local area etc if these could be handled by local government then available resources could be better put towards the national parliament discussing issues of more national significance however in the context of authoritarian regimes or semi-authoritarian regimes having an autonomous local government infrastructure reduces the capacity for centralized control And so then the discussion comes full circle. A regime wants centralized control. Centralized control means that local issues, if they're spoken with the loudest voice, take up time on the national spectrum or the national platform. And so a regime gets control over an agenda, but then little is done. And so the efficiency of the state's institutions is is restricted. Absolutely. And you raise wrong expectations. So people get used that they're a deputy in parliament acts as the local troubleshooter, but they don't expect this person then to control the government per se. So, and and as I said, parliamentarians, they work literally 24 hours if they are motivated and take their job serious, but they work on the wrong things. Namely, as Paul has just explained again, the deficiencies that otherwise exist in these dysfunctional authoritarian or semi-authoritarian regimes. And that is, I think, my intention also, to keep the parliamentarians busy so they, they have their successes in their local level, but nationally, they don't play this important role. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess we also see sometimes that parliamentarians don't always want to give away those roles. I mean, certainly with the case of decentralization in Jordan that Paul discusses, I mean, there was a lot of incentive to remain involved in those local issues. Yes, not only that the parliamentarians enjoy being appreciated by their local constituencies, they also avoid being in conflict with the regime as such. 
Because if they would take their national tasks serious to legislate and to control the government, they would be much more under pressure from the regime's auto security services yeah, that of course, yeah. yield large control over parliamentarians. So if I was a parliamentarian in, a, in an average Arab country, I would be happy to focus on my local problems because <laughs> there I can really do, a, a, I make a big difference in my work. Mm -hmm. And I avoid being criticized by the regime as such or be put under pressure. And that's an important uh, part of the motivation, I believe. If if I may if I may add well just follow on on that question of expectations that some of the more vocal opponents of decentralization in Jordan when it was being discussed before the laws were enacted in 2015 mm -hmm. were members of parliament who saw that their role was going to be diminished yeah exactly yeah and this comes back to the the question of where does Parliament sit in the institutional architecture of the state? Because you could say, well, if on the horizon it seemed that the Parliament was going to become a genuinely semi-autonomous body that could hold governments to account, that could legislate in an autonomous fashion and not suffer from the coercive arm of the executive, then maybe there would be less resistance to a decentralization program right. that would, at the same time, empower a national parliament to be national mm -hmm. while empowering local administration and municipal councils, governorate councils to be representative of local needs as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and there's one other thing that I really wanted to dig into Um and that was this, the issues discussion of international support for legislative institutions in the region. And this, of course, you know, relates to the lack of resources and funding we were discussing earlier. But I, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, on how to support legislative institutions in the region. You know, what can donors and, and international implementing partners do to help them? Yeah. I mean, when we speak about international support for parliaments in the Middle East, North Africa, we could think of direct support offers. So there is capacity building offered for sitting MPs. There is financial support for parliamentary administration. Mm -hmm. There's also capacity building for political parties, which I believe is important if we want to have functioning parliaments. In most of the cases, they are based or built on functioning political parties. And if there are no political parties or no functioning political parties, it will be very difficult to have an effective parliament. So that could be direct support. And I think there's a lot ongoing, particularly now in Jordan, also in Tunisia, as far as I can see, at least until the parliament was dissolved by the acting president at the moment mm -hmm. uh, and put on ice for the time being. But there, there has been lots of money and also men, woman power invested into this kind of cooperation initiatives. Then there's an indirect support for effective parliaments. I would count among them the, the training of journalists or so the media, the way how they report about parliamentary procedures. One of the reasons why Parliament have traditionally been non-relevant in the Arab world was also that people didn't expect anything from lengthy talks in Parliament. Right. They wanted to have quick decisions. And the embodiment of quick decisions is a strong president who has unlimited competences. So why do we need a Parliament where people just talk over years um, and cost a lot of money? But the way how media report on the, the importance and relevance of parliamentary proceedings could, of course, help to strengthen the position of Parliament in the Arab world. Also, the, the way how students are connected to parliaments. There's very limited offers for students, for instance, to do internships in parliamentary sessions. Yeah. 
Morocco started this a couple of years ago. I, I believe Tunisia started this a couple of years ago. But it's not so common if you study at any university, political science, sociology, what international relations. But you can apply for an organized internship with your national parliament. And that's it's a, it's a big missing point in the, in the list of support of parliament and the, the public awareness about this. So there are certainly things where things can be offered in a more effective way. Mm. But I believe that the problem for dysfunctioning parliaments in the Arab world is not primarily a lack of knowledge how parliaments should be more effective. Everyone knows how to make parliaments more effective, but it's a lack of the will mm. to have more effective parliaments, as Paul already explained in his contribution. Yeah. And this lack of will, I believe, cannot be easily changed just by the overabundance of international support offers and uh, yeah, people from Europe, North America, wherever they come from, saying, yeah, we are ready to help to make your parliament stronger. If the local decision maker says no, why? Except for the advantage to gain or make some money with these initiatives. So that is certainly a big problem. I would add to that as well, a space where, for want of a better phrase, where more development funds from abroad could be applied is in more general civic education of primary and high school age students across the Arab world to get a more uh, comprehensive understanding of how their constitutions work. What is the place of the parliament within the constitutional framework? What are the roles of MPs? What are their expectations of MPs? This more broad citizen-based education, I think, could go quite a fair way in over time. And of course, we're talking decades rather than months or, or years, at least improve the responsive, potentially the responsiveness of parliaments to the citizenry. And this is not a problem that exists in isolation in the Arab world. The Arab world is not exceptional in this regard. Even in fully established democracies, the knowledge that citizens have of how their parliament operates or how their constitution operates is decreasing. Uh, and this is part of what some like Francesco Cavatorta have called the authoritarian convergence that appears to be occurring on a global scale. And that is maybe an important reminder that Paul just made. You can also strengthen parliaments in the Middle East and North Africa by example. But if parliaments, even in established and fully functioning democracies, come increasingly under pressure, like it is uh, in, in many countries. Think of the United States, what happened at the beginning of this year with the storm of the capital. How much disregard can you express to parliamentary work when you want to disturb a session where a new government should be enacted by violent means? And what does it mean if top decision makers do not condemn this? You could also think of the, the procedures uh, implemented in the, the process of globalization, where more and more decisions have to be taken instantly, and there's no room anymore no time left for, for serious discussions of these things. Or populism in Europe, including my own country, Germany, where I'm coming from, where more and more people would say we disregard parliament because they are just corrupt people. They are not interested in the serious and real problems of mm -hmm. the people. So there's an increasingly distrust, even in established democracies such as Germany. I say if we fail to strengthen the parliaments in functioning democracies, how can we then be a model for emerging democracies or semi-authoritarian systems to say it would be worth to invest in a functioning parliament if even in Europe, North America, often parliaments are under increasing pressure from inside and outside. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that certainly makes support through USAID a bit difficult these days when the US, you know, needs to serve as a model. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it for today. So, Jan, Paul, thank you so much for joining today. It's really been interesting to speak with you. Thanks for your invitation and your interest, Ezra. Yes, thank you very much, Ezra. It was a real pleasure. I, I really enjoyed your issue and speaking with you today. So, so thank you both. And, and thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of Middle East Law and Governance. <laughs>